Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God had made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever." Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. We are really happy to have Hunter with us this summer. Usually at the end of the semester he takes off and goes back home to Lufkin, but this summer Hunter's going to stick around here in Beaumont and spend some time working with us 
learning about preaching the gospel. So you're going to be seeing a little more of him and hearing from him over the next few weeks. And I hope you'll join me in trying to help be a big encouragement to him over the next couple of months. Genesis 3 is where we're going to spend our time this morning because it is here we need a second main character in the Bible story. We said, we said last month at the beginning of May that like any good book, the Bible starts by laying out the key characters for us. And so here in the second quarter of our year, we've been spending some time looking at the main characters in the Bible story. And so right here, right here in Genesis 3, pretty early in, we meet this second main character. We meet Satan, who is going to play a pivotal role in the story. You see, Genesis 3 doesn't just tell us about how sin came into the world. It also introduces us to the culprit who tempted Eve to commit that sin. I think it is interesting that he is referred to in chapter 3 as the serpent, because actually... He will not be plainly identified for us. Do you know where? All the way at the other end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, the last book of the Bible is we're finally told who the serpent is, told plainly anyway, the serpent is the great adversary, our devil. And so we go back to Genesis chapter 3, and we meet him for the very first time. And I think if we dig in a little more closely what we find is that this very first introductory reference to the devil actually teaches us a lot about him. And so that's where we're going this morning as we continue along that line of thought, looking at the main characters this morning. I want you to notice with me some things we learn about Satan from the very beginning, some things Genesis 3 teaches us about the adversary. There are four things that I want you to consider with me this morning. Maybe you can find a little spot there in Genesis 3 and jot these down as we go through today. Starting with this, number one, we learned very early on that, that Satan is real, right? Do you see that in chapter 3? Uh, he is not presented to us in the text of Genesis as the personification of evil. He does not come across as a mythical character, but instead, when we read Genesis 3, I don't know about you, he looks real to me, doesn't he? He comes into the garden and approaches Eve. We find him interacting with her, communicating with her. He knows about God. He knows about the rules that govern the tree. And, and on this occasion, he tempts Eve and he lies to her about that. We'll say more about that as we get deeper into the lesson. And listen, that's just the material we have here at the beginning. As we press on through the Bible story, we find exactly the same thing. In fact, in fact, Jesus, Jesus in the Gospels alludes to the devil all the time. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, we kind of have a parallel incident to Genesis 3. Have you thought about that? First, Adam and Eve do battle with him at the, at the beginning of the Bible story and then at the beginning of the gospel story. We find the same thing with Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus does battle with him and, and he tempts Jesus and they, and they converse with each other. They communicate. Jesus, we talk him, about him again in Matthew chapter 25 as he talks about the end. He talks there in verse 41 about that eternal fire prepared for who? The devil 
and his angels. It would be odd that God would feel the need to create an ultimate place of punishment for a creature that was not real, right? I admit, there's an awful lot I don't know about Satan and about where he's come from. I think we have enough in the Bible to know that he is a created being and that God did not create him evil. But beyond that, brothers and sisters, we can't say much more because Scripture doesn't say much more. We just don't know a lot about his origin. Someone posed a question and put it in the box a few weeks ago. They said, well, why did God let this evil being into his creation at all? Why did, he, why did he let him into the garden at all? Why didn't he just bar Satan from the garden? That's a really good question. You know the answer? Because I don't. Well, at least, at least Scripture nowhere spells that out for us, although I think by letting Satan into the garden, he certainly gives man an alternative to serving God, which gives us the privilege of exercising our free will. Brothers and sisters, serving God from the very beginning has been a choice, not a requirement. Maybe that accounts for some of that. And I'm just going to tell you, some of this we're going to be left wondering about. But this issue, we don't have to wonder about. We know for certain that Satan is real. And I just wonder, I wonder as I've now taken a couple of minutes to sort of work through that point, if surely there isn't someone sitting in the crowd thinking to themselves, really? I mean, couldn't you just have thrown that word up there? Wouldn't that be enough? It's Sunday morning, we're sitting in a church. Come on, David. Everybody knows that the devil is real, right? I'm not so sure about that, folks. This fella wrote an article for Psychology Today, Phil Zuckerman. And in that article I was reading this week, Phil says, how can people seriously believe in the devil? You see where he's going with that? In fact, he continued on, only a completely uninformed, poorly educated mind with little knowledge of things like evidence could believe in the devil. Do you feel a little insulted now? And he went on, there is no such thing as the devil, there is, no, there is no such thing as the devil, just as there is no such thing as fairies, imps, and goblins. I didn't know what imps were either, Wesley. Fairies and goblins I got, I don't know about the imps. But anyway, he's make-believe. That's the world belief, or at least many in the world. So, maybe sometimes it is important for us to go back in this day in which we live and say that the devil is real. In fact, can I just say to you this morning that I think that the devil is kind of part of the package deal. We've said that before, right? If you are a person who believes in God and you want to embrace Jesus as the Savior who, as Terry said at the beginning of all this, gives us hope when this life is over, we can spend eternity in heaven. If you want to embrace that idea, if we're going to believe those things are true because it's found in a book that we believe comes from God, that's how we know it's true. It's the inspired Word of God. If we want all of that, brothers and sisters, we are stuck with the devil. It's a package deal. He is not a bit player in the Bible story. He is one of the key characters, critical to the whole thing. 
You give up the devil, you've got no basis for believing anything that Christians believe. It's a package deal. And so maybe sometimes we need to talk about that. I think that we need to talk to our kids about that. Our kids need to know, brothers and sisters, that the devil is real. Because first, they're going to be coming up in a culture where people tell them differently. And secondly, they're going to be doing battle with him. And I think the devil would be utterly delighted to work in a world where people don't even believe he's real. Our kids need to grow up knowing they have an adversary. He is there. He's working against them. We need to know that he's real. But I'm moving on to Genesis 3 because I see something else. As I continue through the story, it also, it also strikes me that the devil is presented here as evil. Not only is he real, but he is an evil being as well. Let's add that to our list. When I look at Genesis 3, first of all, I see him working against God. Do you see that? First of all, he's trying to get Eve to do the very thing that God said don't do. So God's plotted out one path. The devil is saying, I want you to take the opposite path. He also contradicts God in verse number four. He says the very opposite of what God says. And so the first thing that strikes me in Genesis 3 is you have this conflict between Satan and God. He is opposed to God. God is good. He seeks our good. The devil is evil. But it occurs to me as well that he is working against Eve too. Do you see that? In verse number 5, he leads her to believe that eating this tree will do good things for her. That's the big switch that takes place in this chapter. He convinces her that it will be good if you do this, and it certainly doesn't work out that way, does it? By the time Satan is done, Eve is ashamed and hiding from God. Then there are consequences and punishments that follow. Ultimately, before chapter 3 is done, she is, she is out of the garden. He isn't just working against God. Do you see that? He is working against her. And that's just what we learn at the beginning. As we continue on, that's what we continue to see. Jesus in Matthew 13 and verse 19 says that he is the evil one. In Matthew 4 and verse 3, he is the tempter. In John 8 and verse 44, Jesus said he's a murderer from the beginning. It is, it is Satan who is behind the greatest crime of human history. He is the one that lured Judas to kill Jesus. And in Acts chapter 5, that awful case of, of Ananias and Sapphira where they're lying about this property that they sold, the devil was behind that too. Scripture Scripture tells us that. And again, I wonder, as I say all of that, if you're thinking, yeah, you probably could have just put that up there and we'd all been good. Isn't it just kind of obvious that he's evil? I do wonder sometimes if we see that when it really matters. I wonder sometimes when we're battling temptation if we see those two things, that there is a real enemy that is behind this, and he is evil, as I'm being tugged into something that I know I shouldn't do, do I really see who is at the other end of the rope and what he's really like? Because he is evil, 
I know that whatever he's trying to get me into, it is not going to be good for me. I can read Eve's story. I can see how that comes out. In the moment of temptation, I need to see that the one behind this is evil. Doesn't that change everything? Doesn't that make the temptation to look completely different to us? Not so appealing when I know who's on the other end. When I know that he's evil. See, I think we need to tell our kids that too. Sometimes I think we tell our kids, hey, that's wrong. Don't do that. And that's all that we say. Folks, we need to introduce them to the devil. We need to let them know who is behind their temptation. And even more than that, to stretch that a little further, we need to say to him, say to them, and and he's evil. And that's behind what he wants you to do. You think that would help our kids battle temptation? If they really believe that was true, I think they need to know that. And we learned that about him from the very beginning. Here's my third point. Uh, The third thing that I want you to see is, is that the devil lies to us. In fact, I would recommend that not only is that what we see him doing at the beginning, right? But that is his basic method of operation. He is a liar. Notice back in Genesis 3 that God had laid out his rule about the tree, right? If you look down, I'm sorry, let's back up to 2 for a minute. In chapter 2 and verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. So God laid that out, right? That's clear. And understand that Eve understood that as well. So we move over, we move over to chapter 3 now. And in verse 1, Satan says to her, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. She got it, right? She understood. In fact, she essentially quotes verbatim what God said. She knew the rule. Look at verse 4. Satan lies to her. He said, you surely will not die. God said, there's going to be a consequence, there's going to be a punishment if you do this. And Satan says, that will not happen. All these bad things that God warned you about, that is not true. That is not what's going to happen. Verse 5, he says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That actually wasn't a lie. It's a lie in the sense that he presented it as a good thing. Eating this tree will be good. Good things would happen to you. He lies to her. He deceives her. And folks, she believes him. Are you still there in your Bible? Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was was desirable to make one wise, wait a minute. What is she thinking? Do you remember, if you go back up just a little bit further from that, in verse 3, when she looked at that tree, what did she see? Death. And now in verse 5, she's saying, this looks really good. 
This is desirable. What's happened to her? Why has her perception of this tree changed so dramatically? I will tell you why. He lied to her. And she believed him. Now, here's my question. How long did it take her to figure out that it was a lie? Verse 7. As soon as she did it, the text says she was ashamed. And she began running around trying to cover herself. Verse 8, who comes on the scene? God does. And she is afraid. Do you realize that this will be the very first time in her whole existence that she's ever been afraid of God? This is a whole new thing. Yeah, this was great. She's afraid and she hides. And then in verse 13, she's held accountable. God says to her, What is this that you have done? In the beginning of verse 16, consequences begin to follow that culminate in verse 23 with her removal from the garden, and she dies. Decide what you want about the meaning of the word there. Are you talking about spiritual death or physical death? The answer is yes, she died. I will admit dabbling in the obvious when I put on my slide that Satan lies, if we will all acknowledge our capacity to ignore the obvious. If we know this, if we know that Satan lies, that he's always been a liar, that it is his method of operation. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, how is it that he ever persuades any of us to sin? How does that happen? How does he persuade any disciple to sin? For example, how could he ever persuade one of us to commit adultery? I don't care how good the opportunity looks. What benefits it might seem to offer to us? How would he ever persuade someone who knows that he is a liar to do that? We know it isn't true. Whatever this opportunity seems to offer me, I know it won't be good. Why? Because the devil's a liar, and he's behind this. And I have Eve's story in the Bible. I know how it worked out with her. I know how this ends. I have the stories of the people that I know, other disciples who've made that choice and gone down that path. And brothers and sisters, we have friends with whom we have lived through the carnage. We know. And yet, we still do it. Even disciples give in. And if not this sin, some other sin. Ultimately, all of us choose to believe the lie. And I hope that you will join me this morning in feeling bad about that and thinking to yourself, how can I be so foolish as to believe his lie? Maybe one of our problems is we don't talk enough about the devil anymore. You know, he's disappearing from American pulpits all over this country. And maybe one of the reasons we don't see it 
is we don't talk about the devil enough, that he's real, that he's evil, and that he's lying to us. You know, one of the things that Peter told us when he warned us about the adversary, part of this verse we often miss over. Listen, we get around to that, that lion who's prowling about seeking to devour us, but you know where he starts that? He said, you be sober-minded, and you be watchful. What's he saying to us? We need to think about the devil, folks. We need to be like Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11 who says, we are not ignorant of his schemes. We know this guy and we know what he does. We need to think more about him than we do. I wonder if we had our minds so sensitive to his presence and to the nature of his work. I wonder that if we were that plugged in, that at the moment of temptation, when we saw something like that, our first thought was, that's a lie. I wonder if it would help us. Do you think it would? What a powerful message to have pulsating through your skull as you're sitting here faced with this battle over a temptation. Be saying to yourself, it's a lie. I know it looks good, but it isn't. It's a lie. And you know what I really wish? That we could get that planted in the skulls of our children. That as they go out and do their battles with temptation, that tucked back in there and firmly rooted is this idea, if I'm being lured into something that's against God, that's the devil. He's bad and he's lying to me. This will not be good. So, I know it's kind of obvious that the devil is a liar. But you know what? Sometimes we have the capacity to miss the obvious. We need to visit that again. Okay, I got one more for you, and I'm going to be done. I'm just trying to keep up with Reuben since he talks about how long I preach. <laughs> Last thing I want to say to you is, uh, is that the devil loses. We need to close there. See, this is, see, this is three is an ugly chapter, and in that stands in great contrast that the two that go before. Have you ever thought about that? Genesis 1 or 2 are beautiful as we watch God form His amazing creation and then narrow that down to this one spot of His creation where He builds this fabulous garden just for Adam and Eve, and then He brings that couple together and He puts them in His garden. Isn't that a beautiful scene? Closes with the two of them together. In God's perfect garden, that's how it starts. And then you get to chapter 3. And folks, there is nothing pretty in chapter 3, right? From beginning to end, it is an ugly chapter. From, from the temptation to the failure and the collapse to the shame and the fear and the hiding to the confrontation with God and then the punishments and the consequences start and the chapter closes with them being put out and barred from ever for this, from this, this beautiful, perfect place. It's an ugly chapter, isn't it? Oh, but not completely. I say that. There is one exception. Right in the middle of this ugly chapter, this dark chapter, there, there's one little flicker of light. You guys know what I'm talking about? I would count it in the top five weirdest chapters in the, or verses in the whole Bible. It's a weird verse. Verse 15, as God's punishing the serpent 
He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You shall, he shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. And I've wondered, Max, sometimes, what if Genesis were the only book of the Bible we had? I wonder what men would do with this verse. In fact, even before the light of the gospel came, what a strange verse it must have seemed to the Hebrews who would have read this and speculated, what is this talking about? Celebrate today, brothers and sisters, that we live in the light of the gospel because as we go on through the story, we know we don't just have Genesis. And as we progress all the way through, we know exactly what he's talking about here. There is a time coming when, when the adversary, Satan, is going to deal a minor blow to Jesus. It happened at, at the cross when he persuaded men to put Jesus to death. Someone says, that doesn't sound like a minor blow. That sounds like a big deal. Yeah, it's minor when you compare it to what God was doing through Jesus at Calvary, right? Because what was happening at Calvary is God was dealing the devil a death blow because he's providing men a way of escape from his hold, a way for us to be rescued from our sins and to be back with God again at the end. That's what's going on. At Calvary, he was, he was defeated. And in fact, the paradise lost in Genesis 3. By the time we get to the very end of the Bible story, brothers and sisters, is the paradise regained. Revelation chapter 22, as it envisioned heavens, describes us being back with God. And what's fascinating is that the Holy Spirit uses garden language to describe that. This is Revelation 22 and verse number 1. Revelation 22, 1, then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river was the tree of life. There it is again bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bond servants will serve him. I could go on. I just wanted you to see the garden language. You see the picture? The garden we lost at the beginning is the garden we can find again at the end, the Bible is bookended by the garden. And it's because of the defeat that was dealt the devil at Calvary that we can be there again, that we can be victorious. Brothers and sisters, he loses. He lost at Calvary, and we've already noted that in Matthew chapter 25, his ultimate fate is where? lake that burns with fire and brimstone where he will be and all who choose to be with him. By contrast, those who choose Jesus, they're headed back to the garden, back to the paradise with God. Boy, when it's put that plainly, that's a pretty simple choice, isn't it? Isn't it amazing then that in Matthew 7, Jesus would say the vast majority of people are following the devil to destruction? And there's this little bitty tiny minority that is on that narrow path that leads to life? How could that be when the choice is so simple? 
But you know what matters is not really what other people are choosing. What matters is what you are choosing and what I am choosing. So I'd ask you this morning, which path are you on? Uh, forget all the things that cloud us about that, the doubts and uncertainties that we, we struggle with, some problem I've had with someone else, some temptation out here in the world. Let's get down to where this really matters. Which path are you on? Because there's a path that leads to destruction, and there's a path that leads to life. And whether we choose to acknowledge it this morning or not, you're on one, and so am I. And it might be deep in your heart you know that you are not headed to the garden, and you need to do something about that. So that's why we're here. That's why we're about to sing this song that Travis is going to lead us in. We're hoping that this lesson from God's Word, this song and its words, will motivate and stir you to choose the path that leads to victory. We already know how it ends. The devil loses. That's not the issue. Do you want to be with him? Or do you want to be with God? That's the issue. You'll make your choice right now. If we can help you, you make your way to the front right now while we stand, while we sing.